Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and we're delighted to see all of you here this evening. This is a, a real special evening for us, and it's part of our um, ongoing Writers Live series. You'll find copies of our calendar of events on the table in the back and find out what other authors will be here um, throughout the summer. Um, it's my pleasure this evening to introduce to you Clorinda Harris, who is the publisher of this wonderful new book, and Clorinda's going to introduce Rachel and um, tell you something about how the book came to be. Clorinda? Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you, Pratt Library, for being one of the noblest and most welcoming institutions that there is. I'm very proud to be in the same city with it. Uh, you who know its history know that it's something to be very, very proud of. Um, I'm so honored and so delighted to be here tonight because <sighs> Ghetto Medic is just amazing. And you will soon see if you don't already know that it's amazing. Um, it's... Uh, I'll introduce in detail, or in slightly more detail, its authors. Um, but first, I just wanted to uh, welcome you to this uh, book of bedtime stories. The bedtime stories that Bill Hennick told his children as they were going off to sleep and perhaps as he was going off to work. They are stories of, a, of the most amazing valor and sometimes horror often terror, and quite often hilarity, uh, sometimes all rolled into one. It's, 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 it's a remarkable, remarkable book. And Brickhouse Books is very, very proud to have been able to be its publisher. Because, I guess in a sense, we're all raconteurs here tonight, I cannot resist telling you the book's two backstories, one more amazing than the next. Amazing to me was when Rachel Hennick phoned me one night out of the blue and said the most astonishing sentence. Do you remember Bill Hennick? And I, I, all I could do was screech into the phone. Do I remember little Billy Hennick? Are you kidding? Because nobody who lived in the very humble end of Charles Village where I lived at the time at 26 in St. Paul um, ever forgot uh, little Billy Hennick, partly because I really did know him. He was an adorable four-year-old when I was seven, but partly because no mother ever failed to make little Billy Hennick the cautionary tale uh, to their children because of the... Um, of playing with matches. Not Bill, but a friend of his was playing with matches, and therein hangs part of the story. She knew that I had lived near Bill Hennick. But why did she phone me? I mean, did she just try to think of names of people who used to live near Bill Hennick? Why, no, indeedy. Because the other backstory is so strange that I find people actually don't believe it. So you really will have to verify it with Rachel, our author, if you don't believe it. Rachel, and this is so Rachel-esque, Rachel was about to be mugged by a young man carrying a club in a vestibule, a darkened area of downtown Baltimore, and Rachel elected to chat him up and ask him why he was behaving in such a hostile manner. And pretty soon they were sitting on the steps talking, and pretty soon he said, you know, 
you're a writer, I'm a writer. In fact, I contribute to a book published by this lady. Her name is Clorinda Harris, and she worked with me at the prison and uh, helped my work get published. And she probably still has a publishing company. Clorinda, you ever... Well, anyway, forget it, but I just, that's part of, of my story, said this young man. Well, the rest is history because that, that provoked the phone call. The real history, of course, that we're dealing with tonight is the amazing history of, of the ghetto medic himself. Before I go specifically to quickly, I promise, introduce our two principals tonight. I also want to recognize some people I see in the audience. Mark Cotman, who is the, uh, the painter who created uh, the cover the, the painting that became the cover of the book. And because our graphic designer, in order to make it fit the space, actually um, had to print the cover, paint, the painting in two sections on the cover, it's also inside the book in its uh, entirety, unbroken. So you get to see it twice, and you get to see it there, and you get to see it on the posters. I, I'm sure somebody, if they have any sense at all, will borrow one of those posters forever. Um, they're very they're very beautiful. Um, I wanted to also, because I see in the audience Clarence Brown, who is the other superstar author, the, the second most recently published uh, book by uh, Brickhouse Books. It's called Needs. It's a novel. It's uh, based on a lot of reality of... Uh, other aspects of downtown Baltimore that we don't often see because we'd rather not, but that really need to be looked at. And it's also very exciting and one of the best reads ever. So I'm very proud to see Clarence Brown, author of Needs, wave or something, Clarence, so people, yeah, and in, in the audience. And, and I'm, I'm not, there's, there's, there are spouses in the audience, but there's, there's Andrew, of course, who has had about two hours sleep since coming over from their home in Australia. And where are you, Andrew? Back there. I'm sorry. I can't. Yeah. And, and there is Eunice, Eunice Hennick, who is Bill Hennick's wife and toughest critic and uh, the mother of Rachel, and she's looking very gorgeous uh, over there sitting next to Bill. I, having taken up so much time, I want to leave the rest of it for the authors, Rachel for the author and the medic. Rachel's uh, educational background extends from practically Baltimore, Stevenson uh, University, and I believe one of her professors is here tonight. Oh, thank you for being here. And, um, all the, and all the way to Adelaide, the University of Adelaide in Australia, where she uh, wrote her PS, PhD dissertation on the ethics of memoir, which is itself an exceptionally timely subject. And out of it came the actual memoir. And then you have the subject of the memoir, William Hennick, who you'll be hearing from in a moment, whose story of his life as a as a firefighter and medic, how it came to be, and some of the stories of what he did and why he did it, uh, I think you will find deeply fascinating. Um, if you want to read more about their formal biographies, I do suggest that they are in great detail here in the book, and I'm sure that the book is something that you would like to have. So I'm not going to... Uh, play story hour now by reading that aloud to you. Uh, I'm grateful to 
uh, Rachel and her husband and her family for providing those wonderful goodies. I wish I could claim credit, but I mention it because I cannot. They get all the credit for that. And I hope that Rachel knows that that there is something very long-stemmed in the way of flowers up here uh, waiting for her, too. And I'm dying to know from whence they came. So maybe we'll know that part of the story eventually, too. So, Rachel, I think it's all yours. Guy Cephas with the Smokes to that Cardi Fire Museum. Wonderful. He's the curator of the Smokestack Hardy Fire Museum in West Baltimore. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's really worth the trip. So if you get a chance, please do stop in and, and visit the museum. Okay. Um, thank you, Clorinda. Uh, welcome, Baltimore. And it's wonderful to see you all here tonight. It's particularly wonderful because I had a nightmare a few months ago, one of those uh, anxiety-fueled dreams, that I was just about to take the floor and someone in the audience shot me in the chest. So I hope you all left your weapons at the, uh, at the door and uh, remember to collect them when you leave. Uh, I'd like to start off by thanking Judy Cooper and the Enoch Pratt Library for hosting tonight's event. This library was essential in helping me piece together my father's complex life. I spent countless hours poring over microfiche, photocopying records, uh, and burrowing through a wealth of priceless information in the Maryland room of this very building, anticipating the divine day when I could present this book to my father and to Baltimore. It is therefore highly appropriate to celebrate the arrival of Ghetto Medic in this beautiful venue. Ten years ago, I moved to Australia with a dream of writing sordid short stories at the beach while sipping Shiraz in the shade. And after I wrote that, I thought, oh, I should have written tongue twisters. <laughs> but uh, little did I know that I would spend practically every day over the next decade writing a book about my dad's experiences as a firefighter and paramedic in Charm City. Some might call it a severe case of homesickness, my mother would say it's because my father doesn't give straight answers to any question. This is true. When you ask my father a question, he replies with a story. Believe me, you do not want to leave your car running and strike up a conversation with my dad. Uh, you can try the old trick of jingling your keys like this. Yeah, got to go. Yeah, yeah. But once he starts telling stories, he's engrossed, and so is whoever he happens to be talking to at the moment. I kid you not, a few years ago, a neighbor started talking with my dad, and he left his engine running, and by the time he returned to the car, the needle in the gas tank meter was on eight. <laughs> and uh, last week, uh, the day before I was preparing for my flight to Baltimore, a, a local newspaper, which shall remain nameless, contacted me. They wanted to interview me about Ghetto Medic, and it was a written interview and was to be posted online. And I was so excited that I dropped everything to answer their questions. And uh, it was a profile piece, and they asked me some very intimate questions. I labored over the interview all day and was overcome with angst. One of the question was, questions uh, was, what are your worst habits? Another was, what are your worst pet peeves? 
So I thought of this. I thought, well, I have a plethora of bad habits, and after brooding over them for hours, which I suppose is a bad habit within itself, (laughs) at nightfall it dawned on me that all of my bad habits are, in fact, my husband's worst pet peeves. (laughs) And I found this extremely distressing. Anyway, I completed this extensive interview and submitted it to the intern only to be informed in an email that she was sorry, but she forgot to ask my age. She said that this interview was for young professionals, and I was just over the limit. I was crushed, mortified, so when the next reporter contacted me, I told him to meet my father and me at the Senior Citizen Center. Um, I figured I should at least use the material from my disqualified interview to familiarize you with Ghetto Medic. And no, I'm not telling you my age. (laughs) I was inspired to write Ghetto Medic because when I was a kid, my father, a paramedic and firefighter in Baltimore City, would regale me with hilarious tales about his co-workers and their heroic feats. He'd share poignant stories about Baltimoreans struggling to overcome poverty, uh, trying to make sense of it all. To him, these residents were like part of his family because my dad lived in their neighborhoods when he was working. He lived in their neighborhoods. As a child, he was burned in a horrific fire, and though we didn't discuss this tragedy much until I was older, I was always in awe of his courage to become a firefighter. I wanted to understand why he chose this path and eventually became a paramedic. Even most firefighters don't understand why anyone would willingly become a paramedic. Uh, I know I couldn't do it. I get nauseous changing the cat litter tray, and I scream at the sight of blood. (laughs) But Dad always thought he had the greatest job in the world. He loved it because he loves the people of Baltimore. Some people cringe at the term ghetto, but urban paramedics proudly call themselves ghetto medics. They call it as they see it. I wanted to recreate my father's experiences and put them into context by exploring Baltimore's history. This is a dream I've shared with my father since I was a child. Somehow he and I always sensed that this, his amazing story would be published. Our hope is that Ghetto Medic will boost firefighter and paramedic morale and ultimately make a difference in Baltimore's impoverished districts by inspiring change. As I stated, this, the intensive research process for Ghetto Medic spanned several years as I interviewed my father on the telephone, in written correspondence, and in person, eliciting new details and memories. I wanted an authentic account and compiled as many details as possible, knowing that a few seemingly useless ones would later be helpful when writing the story. I asked my dad for thousands of questions, and the discovery process was fascinating. My father was sometimes amazed to stumble upon a nearly forgotten memory. Next, I worked tirelessly in this library, studying articles and topics such as the race riots, the attempted assassination of Mayor Schaefer, the history of Baltimore's African-American firefighters, and also at the Guy Cephas Museum, the Smokestack Hardy Museum. I interviewed my father's former colleagues, paramedics, firefighters, family members, physicians, and local historians. I even rode around on an ambulance for one night in West Baltimore, and let me tell you, I haven't been that queasy since I was on that ride they used to have at Timonium Fairgrounds, the one where you're smacked against the wall and uh, the floor drops out from beneath you, (laughs) and you're spun around in circles until you puke, and uh, my dad enjoyed watching uh, my expression when he saw me stagger out of the ambulance. (laughs) He wanted me to get on it again. 
no way, <laughs> I said. And he laughed. And, um, I'm glad I did it because that night really gave me a feel for the work he did for 30 years. I still don't know how our emergency uh, work, uh, rescue workers do it night after night. After getting the facts straight, I had to write a compelling story with dialogue, scenes, and a plot. I had to get mom's reluctant okay to feature our dysfunctional family in a book. <laughs> that was the hardest part of the whole journey. <laughs> um, that was difficult, but luckily she has a fantastic sense of humor. <laughs> That was difficult, but luckily she has a fantastic sense of humor and, much to her dismay, is a key character in Ghetto Medic. Baltimore is going to love her. In that forsaken uh, forsaken interview, I was asked, what about Ghetto Medic am I most proud of? Of course I'm proud of my father. That goes without saying. But I'm proud to honor the men and women who protect the people of Baltimore City. I'm proud of Baltimore's African-American firefighters who helped to dismantle segregation in fire departments nationwide. I'm proud of the rescue team at Stedman Superhouse, who saved my father's life in a horrific inferno. I'm proud of the paramedics who, to outsiders, have the most unenviable job on the planet, yet continue working under the most appalling circumstances, under unfathomable pressures. (laughs) Why? Simply... Because they care. Baltimore City continues to close firehouses in Baltimore's poorest districts. Fire stations are the backbone of these communities. They are pillars of security, and their presence is vital in areas with diminishing hope. You take away the firehouses, you you strip people of their dignity. Next week, at the Firehouse Expo being held at the Baltimore Convention Center, 10,000 firefighters and emergency rescue workers will descend upon our city. If you see them, please welcome them to Baltimore and wish them well as they continue to protect people and property in America. My father is going to speak, but I'd like to just express my gratitude to the people who made Get a Medic possible. I want to thank my husband, Andrew Bashford. I couldn't decide whether to thank him or my mother first. It's been difficult for my mom to have a daughter living overseas. Uh, She tells everyone I gave my daughter up for a nation. She makes me feel like the star of an epic film, like Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. I feel as though I should be riding a camel around in the Australian outback and wiping sweat from my brow. However, I've decided not to thank my mother. It will make me cry, and then my mascara will run, and then she'll start dabbing at it with a tissue after spitting on it, and I still hate that. (laughs) No, I'm going to thank Andrew first. As difficult as it's been for my mother to live without me, I can assure you it has been much harder for him to live with me. (laughs) In fact, no one in this room is happier to see the book launched than him. (laughs) He endured my tears, tirades, fears, and heartbreak. So did some of my friends, in fairness. (laughs) He was willing to uh, do anything to make my greatest dream come true. Anything, that is, except come to Baltimore for tonight's launch. Baltimore frightens him because on the first day he visited, my father gave Andrew his tour of Baltimore. (laughs) And you have to understand that my husband is English, 
he has good reason to be terrified of Baltimoreans. I mean, 200 years later, and we're still celebrating our victory in the War of 1812. <laughs> However, we will always defeat the British, and that's why Andrew's here with us tonight. <laughs> I want everyone to know that I couldn't be prouder of my brother, who has turned out to be a wonderful father and faithful husband. His family is his greatest treasure, and I've always admired him. It's Kelly, Caroline, Timothy, son Timothy. He's always managed to make me laugh, and I thought he might do the Pee-wee the Penguin voice for everyone tonight, but he declined. <laughs> Florinda, uh, we, we wouldn't be here tonight if you and Brickhouse Books hadn't embraced Ghetto Medic with your heart and soul. You share our vision, and you share my father's fervent passion for this city. I honor you, and I honor your tireless commitment to Baltimore's literary community for the past several decades. This was a divine match in Ghetto's, Ghetto Medic's destiny. My mother would say, it was nothing but the Lord. Uh, Deborah Stein, assistant editor, devoted countless hours to making Ghetto Medic sparkle. I can't thank, you, thank her enough. That's right, that's Saturday. Mark Cotman created the painting which appears on the cover, and it's priceless. And it was a dream to have uh, a work from this gifted artist on, as a face of Ghetto, uh, Ghetto Medic. Thank you, uh, uh, and thank you, Antoinette, at the Mark Kopman Gallery, who serendipitously uh, opened the door and led, led me to connect with Mark. So thank you. My husband and I have bought so many of his pieces that um, we are building the Mark Kopman wing. <laughs> I hope to visit someday. That's right. And I'd like to thank Ace Kiefer, who did the graphic design. And there are too many people to name, but they are in the acknowledgments. My mentor, Lee Gutkind, um, many of you are here tonight. And Joyce, she's in the front row, and she's a voice therapist. And uh, I don't know that I could have stood up here and, and done this um, 20 years ago. And uh, so she helped me find my, my voice. Um, and uh, thank you, but I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep because I'll cry, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I love you, and uh, uh I love everyone um, in, the, in the room. Um, Pat Ellis is here. She's my uh, former professor from Villa Julia College. And I was terrified when I heard she was here. I thought, oh, no, it has to be perfect. She encur really encouraged me and really pushed me. And, and you're one of the many reasons that I'm here today. And uh, Joe Compton, I love you. Gary Alexander, I love you. Adrian Skelly, um, everyone. Is there anyone... I have everyone. Katja. Katja took my photos, made me feel beautiful, and my husband thanks you as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're in the book, by the way. I forgot. <laughs> I didn't forget those two. Australia uh, loves you, Baltimore. Uh, numerous Aussies helped at various stages, and uh, I'd like to speak the name of Judith uh, Bergmeister. She can't hear me unless I throw out an Australian bush call, um, <laughs> but she gave me essential feedback on the early, earliest draft, drafts, um, as did Tom Shapcott, Sue Hosking, Jan Harrow, Craig Jurasevich, uh, Bill Griggs, uh, they, they were all very encouraging, supportive. And I didn't want to make this speech too long and provoke anyone to retrieve their weapon. So without further ado, 
Let's give it up for the protagonist of the story, the GM himself, my father, Bill Hennick. plan on a speech because I have to wing it a little bit. But anyway, I really appreciate all of you for coming out here and supporting Rachel. She's worked nine years on this project and she has sweated out every little detail. And uh, I really appreciate that. Doing that for me was uh, uh, beyond words of what I can say because I don't know any uh, other uh, daughter or son that has actually done something like that uh, for their father. But this is more, uh, uh, it's like Mark Cotman said, and he said this is not uh, this story is not about race, it's about humanity. And that's what we want to get across. Rachel and I would love to see this book influence people all the way across the country and around the world. And uh, I believe it can do that. This book has a way of getting into your, your inner soul and make you realize what's really important out there. And uh, she has fulfilled that. And all you have to do is read it, and I think you'll see what I mean on that. And the other thing, I want, to, I want to acknowledge Andrew back there trying to take some pictures. That he's, uh, He came all the way from Adelaide, Australia to support Rachel. And that's a long trip to come here to be able to do that for her. And I really appreciate the fact that he supported her through this whole experience. And from my wife Eunice for bearing up with it over the years because it's not easy to be a wife of a firefighter or, or a cop. They, a lot of, there's a lot of divorce rate in both of those professions. And my son over there, Craig, who's always there when I need him, and actually brought me down here tonight, which helped me out a lot. And his wife, Kelly, and my two grandchildren over there, uh, Caroline and Timothy. And I appreciate having a family like this, and uh, I appreciate as much as I appreciate you all being here. And also, there's another bit of news for Guy Cephas. His, uh, his collection that he has guarded for the last X number of years which is a tremendous collection of fire memorabilia. A lot of it's about black firefighters. It goes back to the beginning of the last century. Uh, there's a one-of-a-kind collection. And it's going to be put into the, uh, associated with the Fire Museum of Maryland out in Lucerville at Heber Plaza. They're, they prepared the space out there for that. So, this is a... He, he hung in there, and it, it, it's going to happen. So, I was going to read a segment from the book but I don't know if Clorinda wants me to do that at this particular point in time. And it's, it actually ties in with this. And it, I don't know if you all want to bear with me on it, but it, it actually uh, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing because it ties in with what I have in this envelope. But I don't have a book. Of, oh, here, right back here. <laughs> it's a little lengthy, but it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I, when I came here tonight, I didn't really expect to try to wing it. I thought I was supposed to read a segment uh, uh, from the book. And hang in there just for a second. Uh, let me get to it here. 190. Okay, this chapter is called uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. In the city of Baltimore, villains and heroes collide. A few days before Easter 1976, a man named Charles A. Hopkins 
stepped off of the elevator in the city of Baltimore's temporary offices in the post office building in search of the mayor. City Hall, located on Holiday Street, was under construction, but the renovation, rather. But the man seemed to know where he was going as he slipped past the receptionist. With lunchtime bustle all around, he followed a mayoral staff member through a door which closed and locked behind him. Then Charles Hopkins' pace began to quicken. He jogged down the hallway, turned abruptly into Kathleen Nolan's office, and demanded to see Mayor William Donald Schaefer. The young office manager stood up. She normally greeted visitors with a smile, but not this time. There, are, well, there was something menacing about this stranger. Who are you? Nolan asked Hopkins. I'll show you who I am, he growled, exposing a pistol. Unimaginably, he pulled the trigger. Thirty-eight caliber bullet uh, blazed through Nolan's chest, uh, pierced the bookcase behind her, and chipped the wall. When Supervisor Joanne McQuaid heard the commotion, she raced over and pushed her way through the crowd, gathering outside Nolan's open door. Before her stood Nolan, ashen, wide-eyed, with her legs starting to go out from under her. He shot me, said Nolan. The gunman swung around, and now it was Joe A. McQuaid who stared into the barrel of the pistol. Hopkins ordered her to take him to the mayor. McQuaid thought, oh my God, now I've had it. She took off down the hallway, dashed into an office, and grabbed the phone. As she dialed zero, she felt the gun jabbing into her neck. Put down the phone or I'll kill you, Hopkins uh, snatched her by her blouse, bunching her collar in his fist, and snarling that he would not be telling her one more time that he was here to see the mayor. McQuaid's mind raced. She told the gunman Schaefer had not yet returned from Annapolis, the state capital, but the mayor was just a few yards away behind his door. She wondered how her baby son would grow up without her when she was dead. In a fury, Charles Hopkins muscled McQuaid out into the corridor in the direction of the city council offices. Meantime, Karen Blair, another assistant to the mayor, had barricaded herself in a nearby office and was seeking frantically to defy strict orders from Mayor Schaefer's top aide, Joan Bereska, whose handwritten sign was taped at the mayor's door, Do not enter. Absolutely no one. It was the day after the close of the 90-day General Assembly in Annapolis. Bereska hadn't liked the dark circles under the mayor's eyes. Uh, she knew he still had a mound of paperwork to contend with and dangling legislative issues to the top, so she had turned down the volume on the inner office telephones. When finally Karen Blair succeeded in getting out on the emergency line, she hysterically told Mayor Schaefer not to open his door, nor to come out of his office no matter what. There was a shooter nearby on a rampage determined to kill him. With his partner behind the wheel of Medic 4, my father sped to the scene. As they rounded a blind street corner where the handsome old Pratt Library uh, stood, Medic 4 and another ambulance nearly smashed into each other. Bill, who was 35, about the same age as the gunman, it would later be revealed, ran through the Calvert Street entrance to City Hall and punched six in the elevator. On the seventh floor, Charles Hopkins was dragging Joanne McQuaid across an enclosed bridge toward the elevator so he'd get down to the city council offices. How about if I help you to get out of the building so you can get away, McQuaid's heart uh, pounded. Just do what I tell you, said Hopkins. When the elevator didn't come at once, he dragged her down a flight of stairs. As Hopkins prepared to leap over a security gate, McQuaid broke free and tore down the stairwell, five more floors, escaping to the lobby where she cried for help. Up on the sixth floor, Hopkins barreled into the office of Councilman Dominic Leone, who was sitting there with William E. Berkman, clerk of the elections board. The gunman waved his pistol at Berkman and demanded, Who are you? 
I ain't nobody, Berkman answered. What's the matter, fella? <laughs> What's the matter, fella? Councilman Leone asked, rising from behind his desk. On the wall in back of Leone was a picture of the late John F. Kennedy, assassinated in the 1960s. Why don't you put the gun down? Hopkins' bullet struck him in the chest. Leone was dead in the next instant. Hearing the shot, Councilman J. Joseph Kern and other staff members slammed their office doors, locked themselves in as the gunman fired in the direction of Berkman, who was fleeing down the hall, running into an open office. Hopkins grabbed Councilman Carol J. Fitzgerald and shoved the pistol into his cheek. The police had converged, but Fitzgerald called out, please back off or he'll shoot me. Hopkins found Fitzgerald, forced Fitzgerald into the council president's vacant office. Walter Orlinsky was in Washington, D.C. that day. A shot rang out. As my father stepped from the elevator into the pandemonium of the sixth floor, employees ran past him screaming. A body against the wall seemed to have exploded out of his desk chair, which was wheeling around on its own. The brass nameplate on the desk said Dominic Leone. His heart was motionless. Hearing gunshots on the floor above, Bill ran down the hall and up the staircase. Chaos greeted him on the seventh floor, too. He knelt to examine a woman lying on the floor. It was Kathleen Nolan. She gasped out her answers the best she could while slipping into shock. She was pallid and sweating, and her eyelids were closing. Her blood pressure had plummeted, while her heart beat rapidly to compensate for the loss of blood. Bill glanced up at the Popeye perspiring circle of faces above him. These were faces he knew from the news. City councilman, the chief of police, the mayor of Baltimore City. They were all in shock. Just after 12.30 p.m., police charged into the office. I've been shot, Fitzgerald said. At that moment, Officer Robert C. Smith shot the gunman twice. Police fired three more times. The gunman stumbled toward the wall and fell to the floor. Hopkins had taken two bullets in the abdomen, one in the left arm and finger, and one in the backside. During the scuffle, Officer Thomas Gaither had been shot in the knee. Meanwhile, one floor below, my father attended to the wounded secretary. Pale and dripping with sweat, Nolan stared at Dad, her gaze distant behind uh, heavy eyelids. She was losing consciousness. He wrapped his fingers around her wrist, felt her clammy skin, her weak pulse beat rapidly. What's your name? Kathleen, she groaned. The fact that she was speaking at all was a good sign. Dad wrapped a gray blood pressure cuff around her arm between the elbow and the shoulder, quickly squeezed the, the uh, bulb, pumping air until the cuff expanded. The needle on the gaze dropped steadily down. As he heard the, th the rapid thumping through his stethoscope, he knew every second counted. He needed to get her to the hospital as soon as possible because Kathleen was still conscious. He did not think a major artery had been hit, but he couldn't be sure. After all, he wasn't a doctor. In the hospital, physicians work in a controlled setting. All around my father was chaos. Dad heard Kathleen's co-workers and well-meaning strangers yelling, but he stayed focused on her. He looked up for a split second and saw the faces looking down, Schaefer, council members, co-workers, and dignitaries, and there was my father was on his knees at their feet. He hovered over Kathleen Nolan, trying desperately to keep her lifeblood pumping while the politicians, still in shock, towered above him powerless. Dad's every move was being watched. There was no time for error. He traced Nolan's arm to the elbow to get a good vein, shoved in the needle, pulled back on the casing until the tube and needle were deep in her flesh. After a trauma, the vein can close. He had to be sure to keep the vein open. Nolan needed the intravenous fluids right away. While keeping pressure on the arm, he used his thumb to hook up the 1,000cc bag ringer's lactate fluid to keep her alive until he could get her to the hospital. 
Amazingly, she was soon stable enough to move. You okay, that is? Mm, she replied. He raised her shirt, spotted a small hole in about the size of a nail, head in the upper part of her chest. Dad gently lifted her, quickly looked at her back, but no exit wound was apparent. He had seen enough gunshot wounds to know that the bullet could have ricocheted inside her body and damaged the organs. He put a compress over the entrance wound. He and his partner put her on the litter. Someone cleared a path for them, but they wheeled her away. Once inside the medic unit, Dad gave her oxygen, hooked her up to the cardiac monitor, sent the EKG to the hospital, and radioed the doctor at Mercy Hospital with a readout ETA of four minutes. Next day, Councilman J. Joseph Curran Sr., who was 71, was treated for heart problems attributed to witnessing the events. He died the following year. Medic 1 delivered the gunman to the University Hospital, where he recovered after five hours of surgical care. Hopkins had been the owner-operator of a small carry-out business on Baltimore's Rutland Avenue. He testified that he wanted to kill the mayor because the city health department had closed his establishment. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and has spent his life in mental health facilities where he has been treated for schizophrenia. Kathleen Nolan survives. Even now, whenever another government office massacre occurs in the United States, the shootout at Baltimore City Hall in 1976, America's Bicentennial, inevitably resurfaces in local newspapers. People old enough to remember it often contribute let another forgotten tidbit about the day. Mayor Schaefer was almost assassinated. Medic Bill Hennick, never name is never mentioned. I always think of that day as the time when, for a few minutes, the mayor of Baltimore uh, looked to my father for guidance. So, that was, that was, uh, yeah. I, uh, I hope that wasn't too long, but there's a lot more cheerful things than that in the book. <laughs> um, the reason I wanted to read that is because this, this is amazing. Uh, uh, most of you know, knew who Mayor Schaefer was, if it's not heard about him. So he's probably the, the greatest mayor that Baltimore ever had. But anyway, uh, last year in February, early February, I wrote him a letter. He, he was in the Charlestown Retirement Community, and I figured he was kind of lonely out there, and nobody was really visiting him or paying any attention to him. So I wrote him a letter which expresses the way everybody in Baltimore felt about Mayor Schaefer. And I, I, I just said, uh, dear Mayor Schaefer, I wanted to write you a personal note of appreciation for your involvement in Baltimore City. Harbor Place became a must-see for folks visiting Baltimore from all points of the globe. Who could forget our mayor in his old-time bathing suit, straw hat, and rubber ducky, declaring the opening of the National Aquarium? You will leave behind a legacy of caring for Baltimore residents and will always be remembered. I vividly recall the incident that occurred in the temporary city hall many years ago when a crazed gunman killed Dominic Leone and wounded Kathleen Nolan. She was in the area adjacent to your office. I was a paramedic at that time and attended to this lady. Thankfully, your life was spared and you were able to continue serving Baltimore residents. I occasionally ask people, who was Baltimore's greatest mayor? The answer is always Schaefer. Continue inspiring folks at Charlestown and reflect on your amazing life. P.S. And for the past seven years, my daughter and I have collaborated on a unique book that delivers the message of caring for people in Baltimore and across the nation. Now, this was in early February, mid-April. I get this. I thought it was an advertisement or something. I thought, well, it's got a regular stamp on it, so they thought enough to put a regular stamp on it that says celebrate. So I thought I'd open it up. And I almost threw it out. But uh, when I opened it up, I, uh, 
And this is two and a half months later. It was uh, the postmarked April the 15th, which was a, a Friday. And on the front is a hand-painted picture of Mayor Schaefer and, he, and his <laughs> bathing suit and the rubber ducky and the straw hat. And uh, that was his stationery. So I think that meant a lot for him to be involved in the opening of the National Aquarium and the Inner Harbor. And anyway, I, I opened it up and it said, uh, Dear Bill, please forgive me for not writing sooner as I have been ill. How wonderful to get your letter and at the end to see you go back as a paramedic that day. He's got in quotes. I mean, it was 35 years before this. So uh, as a paramedic that day, thank you. You sound like a caring person to me and your daughter. Thank you for taking the time to write to me. Sincerely, sincerely Don Schaefer. I read this at 2 o'clock Monday, 6 o'clock the news came out, he died. It's probably the last piece of correspondence uh, that he ever sent out. And I consider this probably unfinished business from Mayor Schaefer. And he didn't, he didn't want to leave this world without um, covering everything that he wanted to cover. And uh, so I was, I was thrilled about this. So anyway, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I thought it, uh, it kind of tied in with the, uh, with the article in the book. And um, it was very nice of him to do this at, at the last minute. So, okay. Anybody have any questions or anything? Or, or? I, I did say I love you, like, too much. <laughs> so anyway, so we hope the book will make a difference. Uh, uh, when you read it, I think you'll find that it's, uh, it's a very absorbing book. So thank you for your time. Yeah. I got to move my head. If they pass up on this out there, they are crazy because they're fumbling around for material in Hollywood. <laughs> so, but anyway, it would make a terrific uh, movie, and I think it would be a real audience audience participation film. Soul Train, MFSB, TSOP, 73 Stereo. <laughs> Great, great piece of music, and it fits right in. I knew everything was fit in with it, and I want to use Michael McDonald from Mad TV for the lead role on <laughs> But anyway, uh, I didn't want to take up any more time. I've taken up enough here. And thank you again, all of you, for coming out. I really appreciate it. For, for her sake, she's put so much work into this, and uh, it really reads well. It reads like a novel, and I think you would really enjoy this book. So. Thank you.